Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Break free from the forces holding you back. Get the life you deserve. Eliminate stress, reduce anxiety, decrease depression, and start living your full potential. Thousands have used Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory, an evidence-based behavioral health breakthrough with incredible life-changing results. Getting rid of past trauma, having fulfilling relationships, increasing earnings, and living their best life. Now, the Fujian app is available to everyone. The app is Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory in the palm of your hand. Download the Fujian app today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice podcast, a heartfelt chat with my guests and you beautiful listeners and viewers. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane. I'm a psychotherapist and author and the originator of the awareness integration theory. Um, it's so nice to be with you today. I wanted to share with you a little bit about some of the books that are out there, and I'd love for you to have access to them. Um, the first book is Life Reset, which is for all of you who love to work with um, journaling and really doing self-discovery. It gives you all of the six phases of the awareness integration theory in different areas of your life, and you could journal as you like. And um, it gives you a lot of opening about the present moment, clearing your past, and envisioning your tomorrow and creating the tomorrow that you really want. The Awareness Integration Therapy book is actually for psychotherapists and clinicians, which teaches you how to be with your clients and how to use this model, all the six phase of interventions with your clients. And uh, we do have certification program for any clinicians that love to learn this and work with their client. And you will be featured in the awarenessintegration.com and um, the, the app fujan.com uh, to be a support to anyone who wants to work at uh, this type of, uh, of work. And it is a trauma-based and trauma-informed uh, psychotherapy. It's a multi-modality education on a psychological model. So I really hope you enjoy it. And also intentional parenting, which I uh, wrote with two of my amazing colleagues who are specializing in early childhood development and education of, uh, and from an educational perspective. Any parents, any grandparents, any teachers, intentional parenting is a book for you because what it does, it um, offers you every, you know, from an infancy all the way to young adulthood, offers you a um, way to be with a child, a teenager, an adult um, from the awareness integration perspective, um, talking about uh, motor skills, uh, cognitive skills, emotional skills, and what to do and how to be with them throughout the process. Because uh, it's, it's a difficult process to go through as a parent or a grandparent or a teacher. So those are the books. We do have certification programs for life coaches and uh, psychotherapists. We love to hear from you. So just go to awarenessintegration.com, um, shoot me an email, let me know that you're interested. And I'd love to have you in all of those classes. So in this episode, um, I'm so honored to talk to Dr. Robert Okin. He's a leading psychiatrist and world-recognized expert on human rights for the mentally disabled. He began his career at the National Institutes of Mental Health, followed by 10 years as Commissioner of Mental Health for the state of Vermont and Massachusetts. 
He went on to serve as a chief of psychiatry at San Francisco General Hospital and as a professor of clinical psychiatry at University of California, San Francisco for 17 years as a founding member of the Board of Advisors of Mental Disability Right International. He led psychiatric projects and investigative missions in Armenia, Azerbaijan, Hungary, Peru, Romania, Turkey, Paraguay, and Ukraine, as well as Mexico, where he helped to close the notoriously abusive Ocaranza psychiatric facility in Hidalgo, replacing it with more home-like setting and community-based services. He's been, um, he's been quoted in New York Times numerous times and was featured on ABC's 2020. Um, gentle soul, truly a loving, compassionate and gentle soul when he knows what to do and how to do it. And I'm positive, I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from his book. Um, and um, I know that all of you will learn so much and definitely, I um, I wish that you will get his book, Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street. That's the book that we're actually going to talk about today. Subscribe to my podcast. Um, share it with your friends. If you like what you hear, share it with your friend and definitely subscribe to it. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and share it with your friend. Um, you know, if you like what you hear, Go and um, do a uh, recommendation, you know, just um, tell people or um, rate it and you know, five score so people know. Connect with me through my website, fujanzane.com or any of the social media. If you like to capture the app, go to fujan.com or any Apple store or Google Play and you can get the Fujan app and go through the whole process on an app and share with me your thoughts uh, what you're interested in. I love to hear from you. So without further ado, here is Dr. Robert Okin. Eliminate stress, reduce anxiety, and decrease depression. Dr. Fujian Zane's awareness integration theory has helped thousands like you get incredible life-changing results. The Fujian app gives you her evidence-based treatment in the palm of your hand. Download today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Robert Okin. Thank you so much for the uh, time that you've allowed for our conversation. Happy to be here. Thank you. Um, we want to talk about your latest book, Silent Voices, uh, People with Mental Disorders on the Street. And um, it was beautiful going through your book and uh, learning about so many of the people that you had interviewed and you brought their stories into your book and really sharing from their world. I think that we have a different idea um, from outside of, of that world, you know, which gets opened up when we're actually listening, viewing and seeing. Um, I used to, uh, I used to, be the head of the outpatient programming for Pacifica Hospital in the South um, Cal Southern California for about two years. And uh, that was a program that was also 
um, offered, and we brought a lot of the people who were um, homeless into that outpatient program. And as I was going through your book, it brought me back to a lot of my experience there. And, you know, um, and we we share as we go forward, but I was not privy to that world until I, you know, um, I was the head of the outpatient program. I really want to know, and I know you shared it in your book, what got you interested in working with this group of this population? Well, shortly after I left my position as chief at the hospital, I was walking uh, through San Francisco one night and it was cold and rainy. And I saw this little woman huddled up on the sidewalk you know, trying to protect herself against the rain. And after I got into my car and for several weeks later, I couldn't get her out of my mind. I kept on wondering how in the world she kind of stood it night after night after night. Uh, so I decided I would spend some time on the streets uh, meeting with people who were homeless and mentally ill and asking if they would tell me about their lives. So that's really how I got involved in this project. And I wanted to know what it was like for them to be homeless, you know, from the inside. Um, I, obviously, I had seen a lot of these people when I was uh, in the hospital, but it was different. You know, it was different. It was my setting, not their setting. And I had the authority of the doctor, whereas being on the street, I was on their turf. I was, in a sense, I had the tin cup because I was asking them for a handout and I had none of the authority that I had in the, in the hospital. I was just some dude with a knapsack and a camera. So, you know, what I was interested in was how they managed day after day and night after night and what they thought about as they pushed their carts around the city what their joys were, if they had any, what their regrets were, <clears throat> and what their vision was for their lives, if they had any. And, you know, unfortunately, most of them didn't. Uh, I guess I wanted to know what it was like to walk in their shoes and live in their skin. Um, I wanted to know what they were like as human beings beyond their carts and their rags and their strange behaviors. So that's that's what really propelled me into this project. I remember uh, at one point around a 55-year-old uh, woman who came to the Pacifica Hospital. And then from there, we uh, she, she had to go to the hospital. Uh, because she was partly hallucinating and then 
of her body was just giving up. So as uh, they brought her into the hospital and they kind of uh, stabilized her, you know, physically and and uh, psychologically, she entered the um, um, outpatient program. And as she shared with me, she said that she's been living on the street for 25 years. And she used to work actually at UCLA. She had a top, top um, position, administrative position at UCLA, which she was there for 20 years almost, um, 15 years or 20 years. And um, suddenly she had a bout of a panic attack and um, she left her job and she got, I don't know whether she got fired or she left because of the panic attack. And after about six months of not having a job, she could not get a job anymore because of the panic attack. And she went on the street. And for 25 years, she was living there. And she was talking about the community that they had created with each other, the friendships, the, the way that they would protect each other in different realms. And that there were times that, you know, some of the programs wanted her to be taken away from that community and go to another location. And she would refuse. And she said, no, 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 I found my community. I'm not leaving them. Um, and it was interesting because the social workers wanted to place her in another location. And now it was this kind of back and forthness between why would I, I've lost everything. Why would I want to lose my community again? Although mm -hmm. in that community, they were losing people, you know, for, for death and all of that too. Um, can you share, and I know in your book, you shared a lot about many people's lives, which one of them really, you know, impacted your heart more than any, and what did you learn? Yeah, well, just before I answer that, I'm struck by the story that you told about this woman, and I think the moral of that story is that this can happen to almost anyone. Yes, I actually thought that, Dr. Oaken. I was looking at her and I say, that's me. And that's what you also write in the conclusion of your beautiful book, that sometimes when we sit, we really get, that's that's me. That can be me at any moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there were many people who really touched me. The person who comes to my mind is Jeff who had, as a child, a schizophrenic mother who was hospitalized several times and who was quite violent uh, at, at certain moments. And Jeff would go to sleep at night worrying that his mother would uh, go into the kitchen, get a knife, and stab him in the middle of the night. Somehow he made it through school and became a garbage collector like his father, uh, a job he was immensely proud of. But he lost the job as a result of uh, some a small amount of pot being found in his urine on routine testing. And he became very depressed and tried to treat his depression with street drugs. But as he became addicted, he then lost all of his money. He lost his apartment and he lost his fiance 
and he was on the street for 10 years after that. One of the things he told me, well, I should just say, I had breakfast with him once a month for a couple of years. And one of the things he told me was that he was just deeply ashamed of the fact that he had no teeth. And a lot of people who have lived on the street for a long time lose their teeth because uh, the grime of the street, the lack of dental care, no brushing, uh, the drugs themselves create a drying effect. And a lot of people who have been homeless for many years lose their teeth. He told me he was just deeply ashamed of the fact that he had no teeth. He said, I remember he said to me once, you know, if you're, if you have a big nose, well, nobody's going to blame you for it. It's just something you were born with. But if you don't have any teeth, what it says is that you're a real screw up. So he was often afraid to smile because he didn't want anybody to see that he didn't have teeth. The other thing he told me that was really touching was that he longed for a romantic relationship with a woman, but he, he said, it's just not in the cards for me because as soon as a woman kissed me, she would be absolutely disgusted by my gums and the fact that I didn't have any teeth. Well, Jeff was hospitalized uh, for an abscess that traveled to his heart. And during the time he was in the hospital, a social worker from one of the programs that I created visited him, developed a relationship with him, saw him probably once a day for a year, uh, encouraged him to try to get off drugs and uh, helped him get an apartment. So at the point that I met him, he was already in, a, in an apartment that she had gotten for him. And he was, he was incredibly appreciative uh, for her and called her his angel. And in a sense, she was. Uh, I asked him, is there anything he really wanted for himself? And he said, I'd love a kitten. So I took him to the animal shelter. And we got him a kitten. And shortly after that, he gave up his drugs, just cold turkey. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I couldn't really do drugs and take care of this kitten. I had to choose, and I chose for the kitten. Wow. wow. He uh, later got a part-time job and is doing very well. It's interesting how much um, love and caring yeah. is the only thing that at that time really holds some um holds the person at their heart i've you know i've um had a very very dear friend who had gone through a lot of um 
uh, drug use and at one point became homeless for about six months. And I remember talking to him and he told me that, you know, he lost everything. And then, you know, at the beginning, you could see somebody who's just become homeless because their carts are all full. And they have this huge amount of furniture and belongings that they're taking. And then, you know, day by day by day, it kind of like, you know, it it takes, it it's taken away from, and they're yeah. no longer, they just, they keep letting go and letting go. And he kept talking to me about letting go. And he said, at one point, it was just the cardboard box. And then the cardboard box got wet. And then I found another one. And then somebody else stole it from me. And then I had two shoes. And then I put two, the two, two shoes, behind, you know, under my head because it, as, a, as, a, um, as a pillow. And then one of my shoes was stolen from me. And then I only had one. And then when the last one was stolen from me, that was the time I just looked up and there was a church and I just walked into that church and I said, I need help. And yeah. it was more like after I had given up every single thing, I finally went and I said, I need help. And he became clean after that. Um, it's interesting that, you know, for some people, letting go of everything finally gets them to go. Another person loved allows them to be cherished and feel like I matter and I need to be taken care of. What were some of the um, the angles that you found? Thank you for sharing with the, you know, the love of the kitten and attachment of the kitten, uh, suddenly being responsible is as if I'm responsible for another being. And I, I want to be this responsible kind of like, you know, parent for this fur baby uh, mm -hmm. that it matters to me. Um, what else have you seen that matters to people where they would take a hand of someone to be taken care of in a way? Because I remember even, you know, when we had a program where we created food and would, you know, would like it was Thanksgiving and had something like, I don't know, 12 or 15 turkeys and everything was packaged and we were going and going to the street and giving them. And for the first time, like what you said, sometimes we're surprised. I was surprised that people were not taking them. And I was like, why? We decided to, you know, do this and this is what we wanted to do. But for the first time, I I really got it that they were afraid. They were afraid of people wanting to poison them. They were afraid of taking anything from people they didn't know. They preferred like asking you to go with them to a grocery store and get them food from the grocery store, but something that was just cooked and they didn't know you, um, they got afraid. And I sat there with one of them and he said, because they, you know, people walk and they say nasty stuff to us. And I, I think that they wish us, you know, death. So I'm not going to take something. They give it to me because I'm afraid that that's what they want. They want us dead. And sure. Some of it could be the paranoia, but some of it really wasn't. It was because it was a reaction to people's reaction toward them. Yeah. Well, that's actually one of the reasons that I wrote the book because as I listened to their stories, I really felt that they needed to be shared with a larger audience uh, so that people could really see them as, as human beings. 
you know, and by giving them a voice in the uh, public arena, I really hoped that people could shift their view of these people because let's face it, the public largely despises these people. I mean, that may seem like, you know, a harsh, uh, a harsh characterization, but we, we, we chastise them, we blame them, we view them as lazy, they, you know, we, we dehumanize them. And, you know, once we dehumanize them, it's very hard for us to identify with them. And our failure to identify with them, our failure to see them as human, you know, with many of the same needs and pains and joys as we have, our failure to see them that way gets carried over into the political arena. And we carry that view to our political leaders and convey to them that we really don't care about these people. And I think that is largely the reason that we still have not solved this crisis today. I mean, it's not just, it's not primarily that we don't know what to do. It's not rocket science. We know what to do, but it means spending a certain amount of society's resources on a population that we wish would just disappear. And we've been trying to disappear these people for centuries and centuries. You know, first we put them in state hospitals, you know, then we dumped them on the street. Now we put them in jails. Oh, a large percentage of people in jail are mentally ill. Jails have really become the legacy of state hospitals. So, you know, when we can get them out of our sight, we do. So it's no wonder that we haven't solved this problem. And it really fundamentally comes down, in my opinion, to the fact that we can't really connect with them. We really can't see them as human like the rest of us. And I came to believe that only by humanizing them, only by humanizing them would we be able to convey to our political leaders that they've got to stop wringing their hands about this problem and nibbling around the edges of it and really take action. Absolutely. Silent Voices, everyone. People with Mental Disorders on the Street by Dr. Robert Oaken. Dr. Oaken, um, you've shared a little bit about some of the programs that you've had. Can you say um, what are those programs and what do you think the, the success of these programs are? So hopefully other people who are listening to us that they could also look at how to create similar programs that are workable for for the homeless? Well, you know, first of all, I think it's really important for people to understand that this is an eminently solvable problem. This is not rocket science. 
you know, people who are mentally ill need treatment. People who have substance abuse problems need treatment. People who are homeless need housing and they need support and they need a human relationship with a clinician, not a technical relationship, but a human relationship. And that that relationship needs to last for a period of time because, you know, these are people primarily, not exclusively, but primarily who had a tough childhood. You know, many of them were abused and neglected. And so they feel invisible as children. And now they feel invisible on the street because people look away from them. So in addition to housing, they, it's critical that they have a real relationship with the clinician, just like I described with Jeff. Um, you know, it's worth mentioning that when the federal government became embarrassed about the homeless veterans, uh, they, under the Obama administration primarily, they provided housing and case management for vets on the street. And in a 10-year period, they were able to reduce the number of homeless vets by 41%. I mean, you know, 10 years they were able to do that. Another example is, is Houston. The mayor of Houston decided... This is what I want to focus on. And he did, and he was able to dramatically reduce the number of homeless people in Houston. Again, primarily by giving them housing and case management services and substance abuse services. So it, it, paying attention uh, an attention that is caring and looks at um, treatment for them. Not only they have to be away from the harshness of the environment, so they have an environment that they can actually can survive in, but also the next key that you're talking about is to have a mental health um, professionals be working with them so that they create a relatedness, a relationship to them where the, the, the person wants to get um, help from the can trust and out of that trust they want to seek and create help for themselves and then they can manage the treatment afterward because somebody's managing it with them or teaching them how to manage it or they're part of a process that you know the the clinicians are managing whether it's um skill building or it's medical management which a lot of them actually do need medical management and psychotropic medications and it's you know medications to be managed appropriately for them. Well, a lot of the mentally ill people need medication, and many of them are quite resistant to taking it at first. But my experience is that in the context of a clinical relationship with a patient, a lot of a lot of people who were initially resistant to taking it became willing to take it. Mm -hmm. I know that San Francisco, where you're you're from, uh, 
Northern California and Southern California has had a lot of, um, you know, raise in their in their um, uh, in their homelessness and children also. Um, what do you think that's contributed to? Part partly because you know they're coming to Southern California, especially because of the weather. But what do you think is is um, bringing people or or creating rise in homelessness in California, Northern and Southern? Well, beside the weather, I think the primary reason that there's been such a an escalation in the rate of homelessness here is the cost of housing, the cost of so-called low-income housing escalated for a variety of reasons, which we can talk about. And people who were just managing barely to hang on to low-cost uh, apartments lost them. Uh, and I have to say that city government at least in San Francisco, city government did nothing to help this problem. In fact, it encouraged high-tech firms to move into the city. And with the movement of those firms, there was an influx of fairly high-paid employees, and they displaced the lower, uh, the, the lower-paying employees. Uh, renters out of the rental market. It just became uh, just too expensive for them. And they they fell off into the street. So it wasn't just that it happened as some, you know, like the weather, it was promoted by the city mm. because the city was trying to increase its tax base. But at the expense of a large uh, escalation in the rate of homelessness. So I would say that is the major reason in both Southern and Northern California why there's been such a, a rise in homelessness. So they they felt responsible to shift the city to the uh, a little bit more of the upper income class, but they weren't necessarily responsible for transition of the ones who needed to get out of those apartments and place and housing in how they would handle and where would they have to go. So the city planning, you're saying it wasn't, it was short-sighted to only gain in one level, but not necessarily working it through in what would happen to the rest of the people. Right. You know, and it's not just confined to California. New York City, a number of years ago, eliminated 100,000 low-income apartments in favor of gentrifying the city. So where were the people who were living in those 100,000 apartments going to go? They fell off into the streets. And gentrification, which is a city policy, largely, you know, was responsible for a lot of people who became homeless. 
So part of what I'm also hearing from you is if for the cities to become responsible for the rest of the transition. So it's not just one element of it, but also part of the city planning should be in that if you're choosing to have people leave, also create some sort of transitional spaces for them, or at least some plan where they can be afford, you know, they can afford to go from one transitional space to another or from where they live to another transitional space versus just kind of like throwing your hands out and saying, I don't care, like, you know, they're adult, let them take care of themselves. But if it doesn't, then it becomes part of the uh, part of what the city has to handle anyway in another way so you're i'm hearing you say can we do this proactively versus reactively at the end yeah well i i think we have to face the fact that homelessness is largely a government creation uh and in many cases they actually created it and in other cases they passively stood by and watch this train wreck developing. I mean, for example, in California, as you know, uh, under the Reagan administration, 36,000 really seriously mentally ill people in state hospitals were just dumped into the street with no uh, services, no housing, no support, nothing. And then, when the drug epidemic came, governments throughout the country largely did not respond in any kind of uh, in any kind of reasonable way. Um, and then the federal government also bears uh, a lot of responsibility for homelessness because it kept the welfare payments on which these people survive so low that it meant that they were consigning them to a life of poverty. Um, and many of them fell off into the streets. You know, the most fragile of them, the most impoverished of them uh, fell off into the street. Something that's not often seen is that the taxation policies of the federal government create disparities of wealth in the society that are greater than any other uh, Western society. And the result is that a small portion of the population uh, has been able to accumulate an enormous percentage of the society's wealth. Well, what that means is that the people at the bottom get starved because, you know, the money has to go somewhere, it went there, and people at the bottom, you know, were basically starved and many of them fell off into the streets. So the very taxation policies which allow this disparity of wealth to continue, uh, you know, ha has a real role in the development of, of homelessness. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the federal government could have, could have softened this situation by creating a robust 
safety net, but it didn't do that. Instead, uh, it often actually cut the low-income housing support that it had begun to give these people. So what I'm hearing from you is, um, again, not only to for um, the government, whether it's city, state, or the federal, to be responsible for housing, income, and uh, treatment, whether the treatment is, you know, different type of mental illnesses, or it is addiction, which is still a mental disorder. So in, in a lump sum to have um, some sort of treatment for these people available where they can actually go and be managed by um, clinicians who can be case managers and move forward and do that while they have a reasonable place to stay and live. Um, which it all makes sense. The, the, the surprise for me was also that um, when I went to Canada, Montreal, I went to uh, Paris last year and some of the other countries which are more higher taxation and a lot more about the governmental support that they have. It seems like even homelessness is rising even in these countries. Do you have any um, idea in, you know, uh, when in countries that also the government is doing high taxation and giving some sort of, um, uh, you know, finan financial support and uh, clinical support, because they don't have to have like definitely insurance that, the, you know, these governments actually offer insurance and, and treatment. Do you have any statistics or, you know, reasons of why homelessness is kind of rising in all over the Western world? Yeah, well, it's true, uh, though it still has to be said that the rate of homelessness in these countries is much less than it is in the United States. So their, their taxation policies really have had a positive impact, but it's, it's true that and and by the way, the European uh, Union uh, has its one as one of its principles that housing is a right, not a privilege, and that's another reason that homelessness is much less in these other countries. In the United States, uh, housing is not a right. We do not have a right to housing. Uh, it's a privilege. It's not a right. And, well, you can see the result of that on the street. But to come back to your question, uh, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in this area, but uh, what I think is that the, the, the large uh, immigration that has occurred in these countries over the last 10 or 15 years has really put a strain on their uh, welfare budgets. And the result of that is that the amount of support uh, to low-income people has, has diminished to some yeah. extent. And some are also undocumented. I think that when, I think most of the documented immigrants have, are a part of the system and have the ability to gain access to those resources but unfortunately obviously undocumented you know they're, they're afraid they can't go anywhere and they can't really tap into those resources at all um, you know, one, thing, 
Just, just to let everybody know, go get the book "Silent Voices: People with Mental Disorders on the Street" by Robert, but Dr. Robert Oaken. Go ahead, please. Yeah, I was I was uh, reflecting on one of the things you said and thinking that underpinning all of what we've been talking about are certain cultural values we have, and. Those cultural values get expressed in our taxation policies, for example, and our lack of attention to these, you know, disenfranchised people on the street. Uh, you know, as a nation, we've come to prize independence and productivity, you know, and really idealize those values. And people who don't have the the uh, the capacity to achieve those values, to, to rise to those values, are, um, you know, dismissed and marginalized. They're devalued. Uh, and that's an important aspect of this whole problem, that just because these people need our help is the very reason why we devalue them because they're you know we don't like dependence right so i'm kind of hearing and correct me if i'm wrong that if we see ourselves in them if we see that we are human being just the same that uh pretty much in you know um it could happen to any of us under a rough or a surprising condition that happens now that there is a there is something that each one of us can do, which is take take a stand, whether you're volunteering for programs, whether you're talking to your senators and um, you know, Congress people and letting them know that you care and something has to be done. And uh, if you have good ideas or you can create programs, do. Um, and if, if you don't have the ability to do that, make your voice heard so that the government can hear you. And, um, support the people who really need it the most because one of the things that we had seen actually in in Southern California and even Northern California is even if you're not doing it from an altruistic place and you're doing it from a selfish place guess what every every issue you're not handling is going to be in your backyard so might as well you know, handle handle it from a humanistic space and handle it from care and love and have your voice be heard from that perspective. Dr. Rogan, anything that we haven't shared that you really, really want people to know? Well, I think you you said it very well in your in your summary. What the average person, I'm often asked, well, what can the average citizen do? The, what the average citizen can do is something so simple, which is to write or call their representatives at the city, the state, and the federal level and let them know that you want them to do something. Because when enough people express their outrage about the situation, our political leaders will will act. I mean, we're we're lucky that we live in a democracy as fragile as it seems right now. And when our political leaders hear from us, they'll they'll react. And I think 
The other thing that you mentioned, I, I just want to reinforce, which is even if one can't really identify with people on the street, and even if they don't feel connected to them, still all of us are affected by homelessness. Uh, it's not just the person on the street, but all of us have a, a stake in improving of our society because all of us are affected. We can't, we can look away, but we can't escape it. Very much. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Where can they find your book? Oh, they can go to Amazon. Uh, it's it's easy. Just type in Silent Voices uh, and my last name, Oaken, and they can they can get it. Beautiful. Thank you so much again for taking the time and for all of you who are out there, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye. Eliminate stress, reduce anxiety, and decrease depression. Dr. Fujian Zane's awareness integration theory has helped thousands like you get incredible life-changing results. The Fujian app gives you her evidence-based treatment in the palm of your hand. Download today.